you'll take your Bibles and turn to John 17. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Remember where they are. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. And it is really amazing that we have the opportunity to hear uh, the Lord speak to His own Father. And we have a record of it. Beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the, before the world existed. I have manifested Your name to the people that You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and, they, and You have given them to Me, and they have kept Your Word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave to Me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All Mine are Yours, and Yours are Mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You had given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them and you in me, that they may come, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that also, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent, have given me, know you as well. I made known, I'd made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. In July of 1935, a brand new aircraft took flight for the first time from Boeing Field near Seattle. 
When it rolled out of the hangar, it was known simply as Boeing Model 299. But as soon as a reporter saw it and saw all of the machine gun mountings all over the plane, he called it the Flying Fortress. And that's been the name of the B-17 from that time on. Seven years after the first flight, Hugh Ashcraft and his uh, crew was returning to a British base after a successful bombing run over Germany. And though the plane had flown many successful missions, on this particular night, it was a harried experience. They had bullet holes all through the plane. In fact, when it landed, they had almost 200 bullet holes. Its nose was shattered. There was a four-foot hole in its rudder. Two engines on the starboard side were spewing oil and in flames. And as they approached the English Channel, the captain got on his radio and he said to his crew, those who want to pray, please pray. Miraculously, 20 minutes later, the plane landed safely back at Essex. Within days, the news reached North Carolina where the captain and the crew were from. Newspapers began to carry the story of this B-17 and how it made its way back to Essex without a problem. Preachers began to preach about the power of prayer. But more than any of that, a song was written about it. And that song took the nation by storm. The name of the song was On a Wing and a Prayer. Forty years later, in a basement in Manhattan, three men got together and wrote another song. In fact, this song is even more popular than that one from the 1940s. The governor of New Jersey, when he heard it, threatened to make it the state song. Even today, Bon Jovi's, one of his greatest hits, is played to close every nightclub in New Jersey. Someone has said, when your situation is grave, when there's no sense of safety, when all you have is hope that things will work out, you're living on a prayer. And Jesus knows all about that. In 1572, Scottish reformer John Knox lay dying. When he was asked, what can we get you? He said, call for my friend to read Scripture to me. Now, Knox was an Old Testament scholar. He was a theologian of the first order. And yet, when his friend arrived, Knox didn't ask for a psalm or the Old Testament to be read. He asked for a prayer to be read. Not just any prayer. This particular prayer. Matthew Henry, the great Welch commentator, said, this is the most remarkable prayer ever uttered on earth. Philip Melanchthon said, no voice has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted or fruitful or more sublime than this one. Think of it. This is God speaking to God, and we have a record of it. Martin Luther once said, these words are beyond measure. They are so deep, so rich, so wide that no one can fully fathom them. And yet that's what we're going to try to do, at least in part today. We're going to dig into this, this Scripture and into this prayer and see some of the large points that Jesus is making to His Father and to us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the scene. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now, this isn't the first time we've read these words in the Gospel of John. Five times earlier, as we've said earlier in this series, John mentions that Jesus' time has not yet come. But in chapter 13, it all changes. At the beginning in verse 1, John says, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, 
having loved his own, loved them to the end. And remember what marks his love for them? The Son of God kneels down in that upper room to the feet of his disciples and he begins to wash them. I mean, think of it. For 12 chapters, his focus of ministry is on the world. But now it shifts from the world to those the Father has given him out of the world. In fact, everything Jesus does from the first verse of chapter 13 all the way through the end of the Gospel of John is for the benefit of those the Father had given him out of the world. And as we've mentioned many times before, what he does on the floor in the upper room is exactly what he'll do on the cross. He'll lay aside his outer garments. He'll do, it's a, it's a, it's a play, it's, a, it's an act that Jesus displays on that floor in the upper room that He will actually do on the cross. There on the floor, Jesus is doing for His disciples what the high priest would do for Himself before He would take access to God. He would wash Himself with a ritual of washing for one week. And yet here the Son of God washes just the disciples' feet. The high priest would take a week to prepare himself. It only takes Jesus a few minutes on the floor to prepare them, but actually He's been preparing these that He loved throughout His lifetime. And chapter 17 is the sequel to chapter 13. In chapter 13, He lays aside His garments, wraps Himself in a towel, stoops down and washes their feet. But here on the Mount of Olives, He doesn't stoop down yet. He instead lifts His eyes to heaven and presents these the Father has given Him out of the world to His Father. In chapter 13, He lays His hands on their dirty feet. But now He's laying His hands on His Father's throne. And He's forming a span of grace that moves from God Almighty down to these sinners. Do you see why John Knox wanted to have this prayer read to him on his deathbed? He knew that whether he lived or he died, All that he needed was what Jesus did for him in the upper room and on the cross. When David Brainerd, the Puritan missionary, contracted tuberculosis, he was near death in Northampton, Massachusetts. He turned to his biographer and to his mentor, Jonathan Edwards, and he whispered, I do not go to heaven to be advanced. I go there to give honor to God. It's no matter that where I am stationed, whether a high seat or a low one, I'm there to give God His due. Heaven is not to please me. It's to please Him. It's to glorify Him. It's to give Him all that I have. It's to be wholly devoted to His glory. And that's exactly what Jesus does for each one of us. He prepares us to go before His Father. He washes us. He feeds us. He anoints us. He dies for us so that our Father can see us perfect in Him. Now that's the scene. Second, notice the sovereignty. Look at verse 6. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You've given Me out of the world. Yours they were and You gave them to Me and they have kept Your Word. Someone once asked a Christian, are you ever worried about the fact you might slip through the fingers of God? His response was swift and Simple, he said, that's impossible, for I am one of his fingers. How do we miss that? 
How do we miss the fact that we are united in Christ? In chapter 15, Jesus is walking with His disciples from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And He says, I am the, I am the vine, you are the branches. What's He mean? He means that you are part of Me. All through the Old Testament, God has one message. And it's always the same message. It's the message He first delivered to Abraham in Genesis 12. Remember what He says? I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants so that through you and through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What's He mean? What's it mean that all the nations of the earth will be blessed? He means that all the nations of the earth will come to know Him. That's the blessing. Think of it. The only reason God chose Israel was not to bring them glory, but to bring Himself glory. How will He do it? The same way Jesus does it. By bringing them and us to the Father. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says to His Father, All authority is given to Me. And then He tells us why. To give them eternal life the same eternal life the Father has given Him. So think about what Jesus is saying here. I have come to gather together a people, a people my Father has given Me. Why? So that they will begin to do exactly the same thing I've done. They will go out into the world and they will preach the good news of a saving God. And all this is reinforced by a word Jesus uses in verse 6. Look what he says. They have kept your word. Now, what's that word kept mean? Normally, when you read it, you think that means to obey. But that can't possibly be true. Jesus couldn't say to his father that they've totally obeyed his word. These are the same men who've squabbled and fought. They're the same ones who've been out for themselves. They've encouraged Jesus even to destroy his enemies. The word is tereo in Greek. And it means to keep your eyes on someone or something. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, they've kept their eyes on Me. They've followed Me. And in saying that to His Father, what Jesus is saying is, I'm just like Moses. The people of Israel kept their eyes on Moses. My people have kept their eyes on Me so that I might be able to present them to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Father, they've kept their eyes on Me so that they will now be prepared to do what I did and what Moses did in this world, and that is to be a testimony, to be the mouthpiece of God so that the world might come to know You savingly. It's the same purpose God's always had for His people. To manifest Himself to a lost and dying world. He has chosen us He has washed us. He has fed us. He's died for us so that we might be just like Him in this world. Third, notice the supplication. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me out of the world, for they are yours. Now, for years I came to this part of the prayer and I could only see the forest and not the trees. Look what Jesus is saying. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me out of the world. And what I used to think was, what Jesus meant was, Father, I don't care about the world. I only care about these you've given me out of the world. I don't care about the unchosen. I only care about the chosen. 
Did you hear about the nun who was feeling guilty about not giving enough to the poor? She was sitting in her room one day opening a mail and out came a $10 bill out of one of the envelopes. The same time it fell into her lap, she noticed through her window that there was a man down on the street below who was leaning against a a lamp post. And so she took a piece of paper and she wrote, Don't despair, Sister Genevieve. And she took the $10 bill, put a little weight in it, wrapped the paper around the bill and tossed it out her window. When it hit the ground, the man picked it up and he headed down the street. The next day, she's told that there's a man at the convent door waiting to see her. She never would get visitors, so she was shocked. When she got to the door, she looked and she saw it was the same man who was leaning against the light post. And he saw he had a big roll of bills in his hand. She said, what's that? He said, it's 60 bucks. Don't despair, paid five to one in the fifth. Now, that's a little like me when I'd come to this verse. All I could see was the doctrine of election. All I could see was Jesus making a distinction between His own and the world. But I missed the point. God chose Israel not to create some little godly ghetto in the midst of a cursed world. He did the opposite. He chose Israel so that they might be the instrument through which He would save the world. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's washed us. He's fed us. He's given us the Holy Spirit for one reason. To get us ready to do what He did. He's not turning His back on the world. He's getting His own ready to go out into the world and do in the world what He did. And by the time they get to the Mount of Ascension, they begin to understand it. They begin to understand that He is sending them out into the world to save the world. Do you see this? That's what he's praying for. That all of the strength, all of the unity, all of the grace they need to do that job would be theirs. He's asking his Father to equip them to do the same ministry he did. And then fourth, notice the spectacle. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that You have given Me because You love Me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is the heart of the prayer. This is the greatest desire Jesus has. And we get to it in verse 24. He will not be satisfied until all of His are receiving their full inheritance. You know what that is? It's not a place in heaven. They will receive it, and so will you. The greatest inheritance you have will be to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, think of Moses. The thing he wanted more than anything else on Mount Sinai was to see God's glory, and God didn't let him see it. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He wants to camp out there. He wants to live there. He wants to see the glory of of God in all of its fullness, and, and Jesus doesn't allow it. You know why? You know why neither one of them were able to see the fullness of God's glory? Because it wasn't time yet. Not everybody was there to see it yet. Philip Yancey was born in 1949 in Atlanta, Georgia. He tells a great story about the time he went to visit his mother at Thanksgiving. and They were sitting on the couch in the living room and she pardoned herself and she got up and she went to a, a closet and she reached up on the closet shelf and pulled out a big 
old box of photos. And among all those photos that he began to go through was one of Philip as an infant. And he talks about it. He said, as soon as I saw that picture, I knew it was me because my name was on the back of it. The portrait was not unusual. I looked like any fat-cheeked baby. What was unusual was the condition of the photo. It was all crumpled. It looked like one of our childhood pets had gotten a hold of it and started to tear it apart. So I asked my mom, why did you keep this picture of me? She said, because of the story. There's something you need to know about my family. My, my father, when I was 10 months old, contracted spinal lumbar polio. In three months he was dead, but before he died, he totally paralyzed at age 24. All of his muscles, his lungs were so weak, he had to live inside an iron cylinder called an iron lung. That iron lung did the breathing for him. For three months he lived in that machine. He could have no visitors. It was the 1950s when polio was thought to be like AIDS today. So he was all alone, except my mother would come every day and sit in a particular position near the iron lung where my father could see her through a mirror that was mounted on the side. My mother looked at me and said, you know what else he, you know what he asked for? He asked for your picture. That picture. We slid it through a little crack between two metal knobs on that iron Lung, and so it was wedged there, right on the side of that machine, and every day he could see you. For three months until you, he died, your father stared at you. He prayed for you. He loved you. He couldn't take his eyes off you. Now, I never heard that story before. And when my mother told me, I felt a rush of adrenaline. I thought, imagine somebody that loved me enough to stare at my picture every hour of every day. Somebody I never really met. I, at least I don't remember him. I've thought of that crumpled picture many times over the years. And that stranger who loved me. The one who gave me birth. The one I have no memory of. No sensory knowledge of him. And yet he spent every day thinking of me. And suddenly I realized I have another father. I've never met him. But he knows me. He loves me. He's promised me a glorious future. And it's a picture that will never be rumpled. Because that picture will look just like his son. And until then, He's called me to be just like Him in this world. You see, Philip Yancey gets it. This is not an exclusive prayer. This is an inclusive prayer. Jesus is preparing His people to do in the world what He has done until they take their last breath. You see, we're all living on a prayer, but it's not ours. It's His. Think about that. Amen.